She will chase after her lovers, but not catch them. She will look for them, but not find them. Then she will say, I will go back to my husband as at first. For then I was better off than now. She has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain, the new wine and oil, who lavished on her the silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore, I will take away my grain when it ripens and my new wine when it is ready. I will take back my wool and my linen intended to cover her nakedness. So now I will expose her lewdness before the eyes of her lovers. No one will take her out of my hands. I will stop all her celebrations, her yearly festivals, her new moons, her Sabbath days, all her appointed feasts. I will ruin I will ruin her vines and her fig trees, which she has said were her pay from her lovers. I will make them a thicket, and wild animals will devour them. I will punish her for the days she burned incense to the Baals. She decked herself with rings and jewelry and went after her lovers. But me, she forgot. Therefore, I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her back her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. There she will sing as in the days of her youth, as in the day she came up out of Egypt. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. I will remove the names of the Baals from her lips. No longer will their names be invoked. In that day, I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field and the birds of the air and the creatures that move along the ground. Bow and sword and battle I will abolish from the land so that all may lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord. In that day, I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the skies and they will respond to the earth and the earth will respond to the grain and the new wine and the oil and they will respond to Jezreel. I will plant her for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one I called not my loved one. I will say to those who were called not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, last year I had the opportunity to preach in a setting behind the pulpit other than Sunday school, and it was a, such a huge blessing. So this is my fourth time as a ruling elder, and I wanted to real quickly talk about one of my side hobbies that I enjoy pursuing, I enjoy reading about uh, when I'm not traipsing around the world doing Navy Reserve duty for the Office of Naval Research, um, or when I'm not trying to complete a massive home improvement project. I enjoy reading and studying about the origins and the mechanics of the universe. And this is a field of study commonly known as cosmology. I just think it's very, very fascinating to consider that we are on this planet that is unique, unlike any, anything else that we can observe throughout the uh, uh, the galaxy and beyond. When I consider that we are on this planet that's actually rotating at a thousand miles an hour, if you were to stand at the equator, and that we are on a racetrack in an elliptical orbit around the sun, 
uh, and we make that circuit every 365 days at uh, approximately 67,000 miles an hour. And we are in a galaxy, a small pin in the Milky Way galaxy that's actually spinning around the center of our galaxy at a little over 500,000 miles an hour. And it takes approximately 240 million years to make a complete revolution, for our solar system to make a complete revolution around our solar system, I mean, around our galaxy, I'm sorry. Uh, And uh, at the center of our galaxy lies this massive black hole. And I just think that is fascinating, especially when you consider our Milky Way galaxy, uh, which is spiral innate in, uh, it's a spiral disk. It's about 100,000 light years across. Remember, a light year is how long it takes light to travel at 186,000 miles a second, how long it takes for that light to travel in a year. Our galaxy is 100,000 light years across by about 10,000 light years thick. And um, there's at least 100 billion planets in our galaxy and about 400 billion stars. And by the way, our galaxy is uh, not standing still. It itself is moving through space at a rate of about 1.3 million miles an hour. And uh, so that's just our galaxy, right? And there are considered to be 100 billion other galaxies. And uh, I think that's just uh, fascinating. I love to study and read about that. I also think it's fascinating to study about how mankind has uh, come to an understanding of the world around us, as namely our solar system and, ga- and galaxy. A Greek, uh, actually Roman, but uh, Greek uh, philosopher named Claudius Ptolemy, he lived in the second century. He was very famous for some mathematical calculations that he had done on the movement of planets. And uh, his view of the universe, obviously, is, is named after him. It's called the Ptolemaic system. And it was a geocentric model. And so what that model do- did was it sought to explain how the planets and the sun and the stars all orbited around the Earth, right? That's a geocentric model. And that idea uh, wasn't original with Ptolemy. It actually existed, and Plato and Aristotle, 400 years before Christ, wrote about that. And so it wasn't until about the Dark Ages, in uh, about 1,000 years after Christ, that things started to slowly change with the rediscovery of some of these ancient Greek writings of, um, of uh, Plato, or Aristotle, and even Ptolemy. And it was not until the 15th century that a Polish mathematician and astronomer by the name of Nicholas Copernicus formulated a different model. And it was a model of the universe that placed the sun rather than the earth at its center. And of course, we know that uh, that model slowly uh, began to gain, uh, uh, gain acceptance. And that model opened the door for the scientific revolution of the 17th century, which, if you know your history, spurred Others, uh, like a German mathematician, uh, Johann Kepler, whose uh, work in uh, namely optics led to the invention of an improved telescope 
And that, along with some of the work, uh, the telescopic discoveries by Galileo, Galilei, uh, led eventually to the adoption of this new model called heliocentric uh, centric view uh, that rightly put uh, uh, the planets uh, in our solar system uh, revolving around the uh, around the sun, and so uh, so today's sermon is is really not a science lesson, but I do like science, and I would love to encourage our, our young people to pursue science, whether it be the life sciences or physical science, life science, or health science, uh, because they really along with along with your study of who God is, your study of theology, those fields are, are not only uh, related, but they're, they're inseparable. So I say all that because these two frameworks, they're really distinct, but they acted as a lens through which, for many, many years, they acted as a lens that affected the way we view ourselves, the way we view our place in the universe, the way we viewed the God of the universe and the way we viewed the Holy Scriptures. And so this framework went for 1,500 years. And so imagine the shock and embarrassment and chagrin when intellectuals and theologians uh, were literally forced uh, to, a, to realize that man was not at the center of the universe like they thought. Just as these two frameworks describe the universe, there are frameworks that are used to describe the theological framework of the scriptures. And most of you know that as a Reformed church in the PCA, uh, we have, our our church seeks to uh, anchor its theology in the Protestant Reformation. And I've heard uh, critics of Reformation theology say, well, why do you want to go back to the uh, Protestant Reformation Well, the Protestant Reformation really sought to anchor its theology in the scriptures and to return the church to the Holy Scriptures. But we do have a very different theological framework, don't we, compared to modern Christianity. All you have to do is turn on the radio and listen to Christian radio, and you will know that we have a a very unique, very different theology compared to what is really predominant, the major theological framework of of most of modern-day Uh, evangelicals operates from what's called a dispensational theology. And many Christians today read the scriptures through the lens of that framework. And, you know, frameworks are important. They help categorize things. They help make sense of things. But dispensationalism was really introduced by John Nelson Darby in 1830 and popularized in the 1900s by Schofield and later by Charles Ryrie. Um, and, and many churches today interpret the scriptures through the lens of this dispensational framework, which introduce such concepts as the pre-tribulation rapture, the third temple, Judaism, and uh, the, in the millennium. And of course, Schofield notes, in fact, the first, when I first became a Christian, I went to the Bible bookstore. I wanted a Bible. The first Bible I had was given to me in boot camp. Uh, I was not raised in a Christian home. And so I went out and got a Bible, and the only thing I saw was a Schofield Bible, right? I mean, that was, uh, it, most, most people had a Schofield study Bible. Uh, but the Schofield notes on the book of Revelation were a major source for uh, timetables and judgments and plagues that are elaborated by, by such popular writers like uh, Hal Lindsey and Tim LaHaye 
and popularized by the Left Behind series. So I, I say all that because that really is, is contrasted against covenant theology, uh, which we embrace and we, which we uh, feel the scriptures uh, point more towards this idea that God has only one people, um, and the promises made to Israel in the Old Testament were fulfilled in Christ, the new Israel, and the object of Abraham's hope. And so, of course, dispensationalism takes a more of a futuristic view, especially when it comes to the study of end times. And so we feel that, uh, and, and in reading the scriptures, I think covenant theology finds, provides a little bit more continuity as you move from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And so I had said when I preached on the book of Jeremiah um, last year that understanding uh, the Old and New Covenant was essential to understanding uh, the whole of the Bible. And uh, the Old Testament, of course, lays out both the Old and New Covenant in, in beautiful detail. And the reason why you don't hear a lot about the, um, the, uh, the New Covenant, or the reason why you don't hear a lot about the Gospel from the Old Testament is because of this dispensational view um, and um, and I'll talk, I, I think that'll become a little bit clear in a moment. But recall that I summarized the old covenant um, as an if-then proposition. The Lord said throughout the Old Testament, "If you will do this, if you will obey me fully, completely, if you obey my laws, my statutes, uh, I will bless you. You will be blessed and not cursed. I will be your God, and you will be my people." And that is contrasted in Jeremiah between the new covenant where, where the Lord said, instead of if man, then God, which was the old covenant, the new covenant was, I will, therefore you will. And so it was interesting on my way to work one morning, I caught one of the popular Calvary preachers. I think it was uh, uh, Chuck Smith, who's gone to be with the Lord. And he was just, just so happened he was preaching through the book of Jeremiah on the same chapter that I had um, uh, preached on, and I was real excited to hear what he had to say. And uh, of course, he talked about those precious promises in Jeremiah 31, where the Lord says, um, "He lay, the Lord lays out this new covenant, this new thing that He will do. He's going to redeem His people. He's going to remove the stony heart of sin. He's going to replace it with a new heart. He's going to write His law on those new hearts. Um, He's going to cleanse them. He's going to pour his spirit within them. He's going to remember their sins no more. He will be their God. They will be his people. He'll place uh, essentially one of David's descendants over them on the throne, meaning Christ. And then to hear him conclude, as most dispensationalists do, that you know what? Those are beautiful promises, but it's not for you. That's for Israel. And it just broke my heart. I thought, no, no, that's not for Israel. That's for, that's, for, that's for us. And so we would not make such a distinction between Israel and the church. And so I had mentioned last year that the, um, the Old Covenant was explained or mapped out in three ways or three phases. And I think if you understand these three phases, you will, you will understand the big picture of the Old Testament. Phase one was always a complete call to a call to complete 
obedience and faithfulness. Full obedience. Remember, if, if man, then God. If you will obey me, then you'll, you'll be blessed. If you don't, and of course you recall from, um, and, and if you, from reading, you know, the children of Israel never did because they never could. And the next phase, which you can imagine, what would the next message be out of the mouth of God if the first message was obey, obey, obey? <laughs> the next message was always repent, repent, repent. And the third message, which is really what I would call the coup de gras, or the final blow or the summation of the old covenant is articulated in Hosea chapter 2. And that's what we're going to look at today. So the entire Old Testament is a story of God's people and their personal and their national idolatry and faithlessness. And then, of course, there's snapshots throughout the Old Testament of the new covenant where the Lord buys back his people. And so one place that this is really vividly expressed is in the book of Hosea through the prophet and through his own disastrous marriage and even through the naming of his children. And so you might think, why is he preaching this on Mother's Day? And actually, I didn't plan on, uh, this was just where I have been having my devotions. And so this is kind of an interesting topic for Mother's Day. But I think I think we'll tie it all together and hopefully you'll get excited about what the Lord is saying through this prophet. So I already read chapter 2, but let me give you a little context. Uh, The northern kingdom, you know, after King David, the nation of Israel was split by civil war with a kingdom to the north and the northern kingdom kept its name Israel and ten tribes with the southern kingdom took the name of Judah. Hosea was an 8th century prophet, and he was a prophet to the northern kingdom, to the house of Israel. And Hosea remained there as a prophet until 722 B.C., when the northern kingdom's capital of Samaria fell to the Assyrians. And so Hosea presided over the complete downfall uh, of a kingdom that uh, never returned. And his marriage served, his disastrous marriage served as a living picture of the relationship between God and his people. And so, real quick, background. In chapter 1, Hosea is directed by the Lord to marry Gomer and states that she would be completely, terribly unfaithful as a wife and that that would be a direct representation of God's people, who he referred to as his wife, his bride. And so, also, in the naming of Hosea's three children, um, there is uh, quite a story that the Lord has to tell about the relationship that he has uh, with his people. So the firstborn um, is named Jezreel. And I'm not going to go into a lot of detail about Jezreel except to say that uh, he was named after a fertile valley, um, the Valley of Jezreel. Um, but that was where the Lord said, that is where I'm going to put an end to Israel and Israel's military might in the valley of Jezreel. Uh, the second born is a daughter, and uh, her, the Lord says, I want you to name her Lo-Ruhamah. And Lo must mean not, because Ruhamah means um, unloved or no mercy. 
where the Lord promised, because the Lord said, I will no longer show love to the people of Israel or forgive them. Then the third son, the thirdborn is a son, and the Lord says, I want you to name your third son Lo-Ami, which means literally not my people. And he says, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. And so I think this third child really summarizes the final outcome and logical conclusion of the old covenant. Obey me, they don't, they can't. Repent, they don't, they can't. The last one is, you know what? You're not my people and I'm not your God. And so we begin in chapter 2. The Lord lays out the rationale or evidence for his wife's unfaithfulness. And he's essentially reading her the divorce papers. And so um, it's interesting that throughout scriptures, the Lord uses uh, these very intimate family relationships uh, to illustrate his relationship to his people. You know, he doesn't do that with Canaan, only with his people. And he compares himself to a father and his people to his beloved child. He also compares himself, as you see here in Hosea, to a husband and his people to his beloved wife. And so the Lord lays out the evidence for his wife's unfaithfulness. And um, he essentially says in verse 1 through 3, he's already divorced her. And he states that uh, he starts off with imploring her children to plead with their mother. And he says, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband. Pleading for, pleading for her to abandon her, not only her personal but her national unfaithfulness by worshiping the, the Canaanite Baal god of rain or face the consequences. Um, and the consequences are that uh, she would be completely exposed and vulnerable to her enemies. That's why he says, I'll strip you naked and have the land suffer famine and drought. So um, they're praying to the god, the god of rain and he says, it won't come. In verse 4 through 5, the Lord extends this divorce to her children. He says, I will not show love to her children because they're children of adultery. He goes on to say, these children are not mine. They don't belong to me. I'm not their father. And even when the Lord steps in, in verse 6, and restrains her, um, you know, he says, therefore, I will block her path with thorn bushes. I will wall her in so that she cannot find her way. She will chase after her lovers, meaning the other nations uh, that she had allied herself with nationally. She will chase after her lovers, but not catch them. She will look for them, but not find them. And I think it's interesting to see that in this particular verse, we see God's grace, God's restraining grace in making our natural pursuits somewhat difficult. Um, Matthew Henry says these are God's hedges to keep us from transgressing, to make the way of sin difficult and to keep us from it. We have reason to bless God, he goes on to say, we have reason to bless God for restraining grace and for restraining providences and even for sore pain, sickness, or calamity if it keeps us from sin. But we see in verse 7 
that even God's restraining grace is not enough to keep us completely from sin. We see that his bride's response to God's grace, to God's graceful restraints, are not enough in and of themselves to change her heart. It says there in verse 7, She will chase after her lovers but not catch them. She will look for them but not find them. Then she will say, I will go back to my husband as at first, for then I was better off than now. So on the surface, this might look like repentance, doesn't it? I'm going to turn back. I'll go back to my husband at first. I was better off than now. But this is just really superficial, superficial regret. It's nothing more than token religion. I think it's what Apostle Paul calls worldly sorrow. I'm really sorry things haven't gone well. She has, it says she has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain, the new wine and the oil, who lavished on her the silver and the gold which they used for Baal. And so her inability to truly repent um, just results um, in more judgment and more discipline and more punishment. And so you see that in, in verse 9 through 13. If you're following along, he says, Therefore I'll take away my grain when it ripens, my new wine when it's ready. I'll take back my wool, my linen, intended to cover her naked body. So now I'll expose her lewdness before the eyes of her lovers. No one can take her out of my hands. He goes on to say, I'll ruin, I will ruin her vines, fig trees, make them a thicket. Wild animals will devour them. Verse 13, he says, I will punish her for the days she burned incense to the Baals. She decked herself with rings and jewelry and went after her lovers. But me, but me, she forgot. You see, the Lord is really the ultimate abandoned spouse. If statistics are correct, half of all Christians have experienced abandonment. Probably, if you think statistically, a quarter have been abandoned and a quarter have abandoned um, and the Lord is, he empathizes with that because he was abandoned. The Lord has already announced the nature of this completely broken relationship. He's divorced the unfaithful wife because she has already abandoned him. And, um, and so the conclusion is summed up really in chapter 1, verse 9, where he says, For you are not my people, and I am not your God. And of course, you don't have to look far in the Old Testament to see that um, adultery, and in, uh, even in a lot of uh, cultures today, is a, was a capital offense, still is in some places. But I think it's interesting to note that after declaring his divorce to his wife, after spelling out the irreconcilable differences and announcing the deserved 
just deserved punishment. Our living God does something completely unexpected. Something completely shocking. Something even scandalous. Something that none of us, none of us would do. And he starts in verse 14. The Lord says, therefore, I am now going to allure her. Some of the other translations say, I am going to win her back. I'm going to court her again. I will lead her into the wilderness, which is a clear reference to the deliverance of his people out of Egypt. He says, I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. Some translations say, I will speak to her heart. He goes on to say, there I will give her back her vineyards and make the valley of Achor, which was really the valley of Achan, if you remember that story. I'll make the valley of Achor a door of hope. There in the wilderness, she will respond. Some translations translate that as she will sing. She will respond. She will sing as in the days of her youth, as in the day she came up out of Egypt. You know, it's often explained that grace is something that God gives us that we don't deserve. And mercy is when God withholds what we do deserve. And here we see the Lord responds with both grace and mercy, love and tenderness and kindness. And what what would you think her response would be at this? There in the wilderness, she will respond. She will sing. This, can only, this response can only come when God does something first in us. You've heard it said many times. I know Chuck has said this, that true repentance always only follows true forgiveness. The modern church, the modern evangelical church often gets that reversed. Now I know we place a lot of emphasis on God being a God of order because there is significance um, to the order in which he does things. I had mentioned uh, uh, last year that, you know, Jesus in John chapter 10 did not say, You know what? Because you believe, because you've accepted me, that now qualifies you to be one of my sheep. He didn't say that. He says, you believe because you are my sheep. And conversely, he didn't say to the unbelievers, you know what? Because you don't believe, you're not my sheep. He didn't say that. He said, you don't believe Because you are not my sheep. There's significance to the order of that. 
and it's important uh, that we that we remember that. In verse 16, when he does change our hearts, and oh, he does it completely, doesn't he? How do we respond to him? Well, how did she respond to him in verse 16? In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. She responds to that kind of radical, radical grace with a term of tender affection. My husband. Not my master. Not with a harsh response of stern authority, but with my husband. So the Lord does not just rescue his unfaithful bride by leading her into the wilderness and speaking tenderly to her. He does not deliver her, just deliver her out of bondage of sin. He doesn't just restore her land, but he does the unthinkable. Look at verse 19 and 20. He says, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in or with righteousness and justice. Whose righteousness and justice? Certainly not hers. I will betroth you to me in or with love and compassion. You have to ask, whose love? Whose compassion? Only his and his only. I will betroth you to me in or with faithfulness. Certainly not hers. And then the response of the new covenant. And you will acknowledge the Lord. This is the essence of the new covenant. I will be your God. You will be my people. This is a beautiful, gracious promise that the Lord through the prophet Hosea repeats three times, each time with an additional element of mercy implying his intense love for his people. You know, I have said this uh, before, but it bears repeating again. You know, we will never hear those words, you are not my people and I am not your God. We will never experience the reality of that statement. And we will never experience it because someone else did. Someone else did hear that word, that statement. Someone else did experience the reality of what it means to hear, you are not my people, and I am not your God. You know, Isaiah 53, 7 says he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. But he did. He did open his mouth on that cross. He did open his mouth not to proclaim his innocence, but to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
another way to look at this passage is to consider the ancient practice of what's called the dowry. And it's still practiced in a lot of cultures in the world today. The dowry was a price that the groom, or more often than the groom, but the father of the groom paid for the bride to compensate for the family's loss of an important member of their family that helped around the house, helped with the animals, helped with the income. And so the dowry compensated the family. And in chapter 3 of Hosea, the Lord instructs Hosea to go and purchase his unfaithful wife back. And to purchase her for the price of less than a slave. Recall from Leviticus that the price for a slave was 30 shekels. The Lord instructed Hosea to pay 15 shekels and to offer the grain offering for the sin of adultery. To purchase his unfaithful wife back. And so you can look at it as the father of the groom, in this case, paid the ultimate, ultimate dowry for his son's bride. And the payment was the groom's blood. The groom's own blood. The scorn and the reproach that belongs to us portrayed by this unfaithful wife, fell on him. And that's why Paul can quote in Romans 15, he could quote Psalm 69, which the Spirit of Christ says, For I endured scorn for your sake, and shame covers my face. For zeal for your house consumes me, and the insults or the reproaches of those who insult or reproach you fall on me. What a beautiful picture. This is the picture of our Savior. And we are the bride. This is not Israel. This is us. This is us. What a beautiful husband and father we have in the Lord. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Let us pray. We thank you, dear Lord for your kindness and your mercy, for not giving us what we deserve, for being incredibly gracious. Thank you for the saving grace in Christ, the blood of the groom that was spilt for his precious bride. We don't know why we were called. We don't know why you don't call everyone. But we know that when you put your hand on someone, you truly save them. Thank you. Thank you for this precious, precious picture of you and your grace. In Christ's name, amen.